achieving declining deficits and stabilizing our debt are critical for business confidence and investment. Bless my heart, bless my soul. Didn't think I'd make it to 22 years old. Hello and welcome to Planet Money. I'm David Kestenbaum. And I'm Jacob Goldstein. Today is Tuesday, February 14th, and that was Jeffrey Zients you heard at the top. He's the acting director of the Office of Management and Budget, and he was talking about President Obama's proposed budget. The proposed budget was released yesterday, and to mark the occasion, we're going to replay one of our favorite podcasts about the federal budget, also about lighthouses, also about autopsies. But before we get to the budget, to lighthouses, or to autopsies, I'm going to give you the Planet Money Indicator. Seven. I just jumped right to it. Greece's (laughs) economy shrank by 7% last year. That's according to figures released today. And I feel like, David, we're sort of numb to Greece and Greece numbers by now. We know it's bad. We see pictures of rioting in the streets. But an economy shrinking by 7% in a single year when it's already been shrinking is even by Greece standards shockingly bad. I got to say, riots in the street, I feel like I read that in the news. It's bad. But when I hear that GDP number, that to me, (laughs) that's almost scary. And rightly so. You know, for all of the financial crisis, for all of the recession, when the U.S. lost millions of jobs, our whole economy shrank by less than 4%. Just last year, Greece's economy, which had already been shrinking, shrank by twice that much. The New York Times just posted a really nice story from Greece online. Here, I'll just I'll read you a quote from it. A quarter of all Greek companies have gone out of business since 2009, and half of all small businesses in the country say they are unable to meet payroll. The suicide rate increased by 40% in the first half of 2011. Nearly half the population under 25 is unemployed. It's, uh, it's amazing when you just rattle off those facts. Um, it, it is a really good story. There's lots of interesting color and characters in it. We'll, we'll link to that from the blog. That's npr.org slash money. Okay. On to today's show, an economic view of the federal budget. But let's start here with a clip from a TV ad. I'm an expert in economics, not a professional politician. I can help taxpayers like your family and mine recover our investments. Go to wheelandforcongress.com to find out how you can help. Jacob, that guy you hear is Charlie Whelan. He wrote one of my favorite books on economics, Naked Economics, Undressing the Dismal Science. That was a TV ad from when he was running for Congress. You heard bubbles because he was underwater in the ad in a swimming pool wearing a shirt and tie, trying to get people's attention, trying to make the pitch that you should vote for him because he was an expert in economics. And, you know, David, it's natural for us to look at the budget and think about different topics. The government is spending this much on health care and this much on defense and whatever. Yeah, those are like the chapter titles in the budget, sure. right? But for economists looking at the budget broadly, there are two sections. First section is things government should be doing. And then there's the rest, which economists <laughs> would cut things government should not be doing. So Charlie Whelan, this guy who was talking underwater in that ad we just heard, he's at the University of Chicago and he teaches at Dartmouth. As it happens, he is a Democrat. But the the discussion today, it has nothing to do with his run for Congress uh, or his politics, really. The way he talks about the budget seems pretty nonpartisan. It's basically the way an economist would look at the budget. So you're going to hear from Charlie. You'll hear from me and from our own Adam Davidson. And just to start things off, for Charlie... Anything that's in the federal budget should have to earn its place there. Most economists really believe in the efficiency of of markets. 
They believe the government shouldn't just do something because it seems like a nice thing to do, certainly shouldn't do things because some powerful politician wanted it to be done. The government should do stuff that only government can do. For Charlie and for economists, one clear category of things government should pay for, public goods. Public good is something that we all need that will make our lives better, but that the market will not and cannot provide. So a classic example of a public good would be something like a lighthouse. So think about a lighthouse, right? If the government doesn't build lighthouses, he argues, you're probably not going to get them. Even though everybody who owns a boat would love there to be lighthouses so they don't go crashing into the rocks, the private sector is not going to end up building lighthouses, he says, because where does the money come from? Who is going to make a profit from building one? I mean, imagine if there is no lighthouse and I say, you know, would you like to contribute to the lighthouse? And you say, well, no, I'm just a better sailor than everybody else. And you're just going to use our lighthouse without paying for it because we can't do it. You know, we can't say close your eyes when you sail past this rocky point. (laughs) So we've got no – with every other good – if you don't pay for it, if you don't buy the sneakers at Walmart, you just don't get to walk them out, walk with them out of the store. And if you do, we'll arrest you. We can't do that for something like a lighthouse. But is that right, though? Like a whole branch of my family is from Massachusetts and Maine. They were in shipping and whaling back in the 70s. Whaling, really? Yeah, the Davidsons yeah, but, for whalers? Well, not the Davidsons, the Baileys. But I'm pretty sure when I've gone on like family reunions and stuff, there are lighthouses that predate the U.S. federal government, I, mean, I have to assume that somehow the whalers figured out, all right, we all need lighthouses. Let's all get together and build lighthouses. Right. So I decided to check this textbook example with someone outside of the textbooks, this guy, Jeff. Okay, Jeff, give us um, give us just name and credentials. Okay. Uh, uh, Jeff Gales, U.S. Lighthouse Society Executive Director. Okay. So my question is, uh, has has any community ever just sort of gotten together and built a lighthouse on its own? Well, I, you know, before the U.S. government was formed, uh, people were building lighthouses in the United States on the coasts to secure shipping. Uh, you know, it was privatized. Initially, they were being built by uh, people who wanted to make sure that their ships and cargo arrived safely in the port. So someone might say, hey, you should definitely come to my port because I have a nice lighthouse out there. You'll be safe coming in. Absolutely. You That's go a little bit further down the coast, you might you might hit some rocks. So you should come to mine. I got a lighthouse. Quite possible. That could have been a selling point for bringing uh, goods and services into a particular port. See, I told you my ancestors were smart. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. He, he he actually points out also that in ancient times, monks used to run lighthouses just to keep people safe. So we talked for a while, and I thought, hey, maybe the textbooks aren't right. We didn't need the government to build lighthouses. But then the conversation went on, and I wasn't so sure. He starts telling me that in 1789, the U.S. government sets up the U.S. Lighthouse Service, and they end up building hundreds of lighthouses. In the United States, uh, you know, and prior to the establishment of the U.S. Lighthouse Service, you didn't have a lot of lighthouses where you needed them. I mean, you didn't have lighthouses you know, on, on rocky shoals or in the middle of the uh, ocean. I mean, those are places where it was really expensive to build. I mean, the initial lighthouses that were built around the U.S. coast were going to be places that are fairly easily accessible. So you're right. I think it would be impossible to charge somebody uh, to uh, pass a lighthouse that was, you know, in the middle of the ocean somewhere, uh, you know, 7, 10, 15 miles off the coast. I don't know how you would actually accomplish that. It'd be impossible, I would think. So it seems like um, 
uh, if you don't have the government stepping in, you would get you would get lighthouses, but you wouldn't maybe get them everywhere you really need them. That's correct. It's going to be uh, the entrepreneurs would decide uh, where lighthouses were to be built based on their own personal needs and desires. Uh, the U.S. government uh, had a broader vision uh, promoting commerce throughout the entire United States and Great Lakes. So they had a little bit bigger picture uh, that they were dealing with. And this is something I think about with public goods, that uh, if you left it up to the market, public goods are often things that maybe the very wealthy or maybe a small elite can get. Like when I was in Iraq after the U.S. took over, the local police force basically collapsed. And anyone who had a lot of money, I happen to live in a pretty wealthy neighborhood, everyone had their own private security force that they paid a lot of money for although mine was fairly pathetic, I will say. But in most of Baghdad and much of the country, there were no police and murders and rapes and and house robberies were going through the roof. It was really out of control because poor people couldn't afford to pay for their own security force. And the rich who bought their own, they were hurt by the whole city being chaotic. They were hurt by the increase in crime, but they weren't going to go out and, and spend extra money on it. And so... Even though it's in everyone's interest, the rich and the poor, for there to be a thriving police force, it's hard to think of who would provide it if the government doesn't provide it. So not only will you have inequality, you'll have just a generally worse off population. The rich are worse off. The poor are worse off. Everyone is worse off. Yeah. So defense spending is another clear example of what most economists would count as a public good. So, so far we have defense spending, you know, police force and lighthouses. Now, Charlie Whelan would argue there are public goods that the government is not taking care of. There are things out there the government should be taking on just on purely economic grounds. I'll give you one example, and here's where we get to autopsies. The Journal of the American Medical Association has been arguing for 15 years at least that there's a public health problem because we're not doing enough autopsies. I used to write about this when I was with The Economist. The autopsy rate has plummeted from 40-some percent down to, I think, single digits. And so my first question is, all right, well, why doesn't the market provide this? You know, why don't you just have private autopsies? So just think, right? If we had more autopsies, we'd know a lot more about how people die. We'd probably learn a lot about how to prevent diseases. I mean, what could be more beneficial to extending life than understanding how it is that people die? And yet, if you look out there, it's hard to figure out who would end up paying for autopsies unless the government steps in and does it. There's virtually no benefit for There's none for the person being autopsied. It's a little late for that. But certainly the family of somebody who might be an autopsy candidate, it's a very unpleasant thing to think about. They're in a traumatic state. So unless they think there's some foul play or misdiagnosis, they're not going to do it. And then you go one step further and you say, all right, think about the doctor. And it turns out that the doctor is the person who has the most sway with the family. If your doctor says, you know what, this is an interesting case. There may be public health implications for you, others, we ought to do an autopsy. That has a lot of suasion in terms of whether people do it or not. But then let's unpack the motives and incentives of the doctor. Best case what you find in the autopsy confirms the diagnosis. And yes, I was right. This turns out it was this kind of cancer and so on. It turns out to be extremely 
common, much more than you would think, which is why the Journal of the American Medical Association keeps banging this drum, that there were either undiagnosed conditions, misdiagnosed conditions, that whatever screening apparatus you used either picked up things that weren't really problems or missed things that were problems and so on. So this person, best case he was right, worst case he's going to be looking at malpractice or something like that. So the person who is in the best position to encourage autopsy often will not. So you'd argue this is basically a lighthouse, right? It's, it's a- This is a lighthouse. Now, so all we've done so far, though, is describe why it's not going to happen on its own. And I do say, you know, there are elements of the market that are wondrous in this respect. One of the things I've discovered is that there is a private autopsy firm, or at least there was, I don't know if it's still around, called 1-800-AUTOPSY. So if you suspected foul play or malpractice or something like that, you could call this guy, and he had this little portable morgue that he drove around, and he'd show up, and he'd do the autopsy. But this is only in cases where people suspect foul play, where the family is the beneficiary. This person is not sharing his findings in medical journals and other things, and where the real public health benefits are to be had. You might have to dial that number. Yeah, I think if you go online, they used to sell like T-shirts and pens, and it was kind of a macabre business. Now, David, after you told me about this, I had two thoughts that I've never had before. Number one, I want 100% autopsies. I want to know all the stuff we could know if we could just learn what made people die. I want to know that. Number two, I knew we just had to call 1-800-AUTOPSY. Hello, this is 1-800-AUTOPSY. We offer private and forensic autopsies to families, mortuaries, and the legal profession. Your needs are important to us. We are eager to make... So we left a message, and Vidal Herrera called us back. He is the founder. Hi, Vidal. Hi. Tell us about the crisis of autopsies. Well, it's, it's become a national phenomenon. The, the autopsy rate has declined um, to almost zero. It's actually 2% right now. Prior to 1970, it was 50 percent because of the economy. Now, it was, hang on, it was it was 50 percent. Now it's two percent. Like two percent of people get autopsied. Exactly because of the HMOs, uh, they own most of the hospitals. Their insurance companies, uh, they don't feel it's in their best interest to um, use additional funding to, to perform an autopsy. Um, families want to know exactly what happened, and that's why they're turning to us. 1-800 autopsy. So our our business is is uh, it's expanding. How much is an autopsy? They average about $3,000. That does not include toxicology, x-ray, transportation of bodies from other countries, other states. And how many do you end up doing in a year? We do between six and 700 procedures a year. That includes autopsies, hospital autopsies, and procurement of tissue for research. And do you share the information you get with researchers from all the autopsies? Does it get published (laughs) in journals? No, it's a private matter. Um, It's they hire us, and it's strictly uh, between us and the family. We would like to, but again, because of the privacy issues and just the time involved doing that, it just add a lot more time for us to, to, to get involved in that. Do you feel like the government should be stepping in and paying for autopsies? I, I believe they should, because if they could, uh, I think it would expand not only the, the learning applications, but again, tissue donations for uh, the live people, the skin, the corneas, the things of that nature. 
Wait, one other thing I got to ask you. Uh, do you do autopsies in your van? Someone told me you did autopsies in a mobile sort of van. No, no, that's uh, that's the media, you know, exaggerating things. No, I'm, right now I'm in a Class B RV, and, uh, you know, I do have my name put on it, and uh, people take photographs, and when I pull up to restaurants, what are you doing here? I say, well, I deliver their meat. But, uh, no, we do not do autopsies in our van. It's just strictly for uh, rest and, and uh, driving. So I think a lot of people would probably agree. Autopsies would count as a public good. So, all right, so right now... We have a government budget, an approved government budget, an economist-approved government budget of autopsies, lighthouses, and defense. <laughs> but, of course, the budget, right, is this huge book. I mean, when they release it on Congress, I remember seeing a photo in the paper of it being wheeled down the hallway on a dolly. It was so many volumes. And there are a lot of things in there that Charlie Whelan and a lot of economists would look at and go, uh-uh, what is that doing there? So I'll give you one example. And before you hear this, you need to understand two technical details. So for something to count as a true public good, like the lighthouse, it has to have what economists call no marginal cost. And that means that once you build it, everybody benefits. It doesn't cost any more for 10 people to use it or 11 or 100 or a million. There's no additional cost once you do it. Build it and it's there for the public. And the second thing, it has to be like the lighthouse, where it's impractical to exclude people from benefiting. You can't say, cover your eyes and don't look at it. All right, so two things, uh, no marginal cost, and it has to be the sort of thing where you can't exclude somebody from using it. So there is one thing in the budget the government is funding that Charlie Whelan finds very frustrating. He argues it's not a public good. That thing is the Postal Service. He actually puts this question on exams, and students often get it wrong. There's nothing about mail delivery that's a public good. First of all, there is a marginal cost. If I write a letter to my grandmother in Rock Island, Illinois, and you write a letter to your grandmother somewhere else, it costs more to deliver your letter than it does to just deliver my letter. So it fails that test, and it's excludable. So when people were quibbling for points, I said, look, I'll give you full credit. If you write me a letter, drop it in the mailbox without a stamp, and I get it. Because if you don't put a stamp on it, it's going to be excluded. So there's, to my mind, no compelling economic reason in this day and age for government to be delivering mail. This is one I hear a lot. The U.S. Postal Service getting this inefficient monopoly is something that really drives economists nuts. Now, while I think most economists would agree broadly on the idea that the government has a role in providing public goods, I think they will really disagree on on what are public goods and what aren't public goods. I mean, I've seen, you know, frankly, fringe libertarians who even argue the U.S. military is not a public good and the private sector could provide it, which I, I think most people would find sort of terrifying. Or that the government shouldn't build roads. Right, that the private sector will build all the roads and then capture the costs through tolls and stuff. You hear a lot of arguing, obviously, over health care, over education. Right, or like uh, basic research, you know, research and development, like how much should the government be paying for and where do you expect the drug companies to pick up doing basic research and development since they're going to be making money from the drugs that arise from them? Yeah, and, and when you travel, you see that there are places in the world where they assume the government's going to provide things that, that seem kind of nuts to us. I mean, just go to Pennsylvania or Utah or Canada and you have to buy your alcohol from the government. The government sells alcohol. I think any economist would say that's a silly idea. Many, many countries, your utilities come from the government. I mean, in, in many countries, cement is something that the government makes and sells and, and other basic building materials. And, you know, in China, I was in this amusement park, this little 
crazy indoor racetrack bar where the whole idea was you got really drunk on beer and then you drove these souped up, totally uninspected, dangerous race cars around a track. It was really fun and so dangerous. And one of the guys who brought me there said, you know, this is owned by the Chinese army. Like lots of places in China, the Chinese military has this like for-profit wing that makes money for the generals. And I think while economists might argue over what exactly qualifies as a public good, many, many things that any government provides, I think all economists would agree that is not a public good. But of course, politicians, they love providing things that are not public goods because you get votes, maybe you get donations. It's a great way to use your power. And that is why we have a Republican Party, we have a Democratic Party, and we do not have an economist party. And as you may have guessed, Charlie Whelan did not win the election, did not end up being a member of Congress. So how did you do in that uh, election? Well, by what metric? (laughs) (laughs) You didn't win because you're sitting here with me. I did did not. I think I came in fifth out of 23. That race, it was a special election we had. I was running in the Democratic primary where we had 13 people. I think I came in fifth. I had a friend from junior high who called and he said with no sense of irony, I heard you did great other than not winning. <laughs> what, what percentage of the vote did you get? I think I got somewhere between like 7 and 9%. As always, we want to hear from you. Please email us at planetmoney at npr.org. You can also find us at npr.org slash money and on Twitter and Facebook and Spotify. I'm David Kestenbaum. And I'm Jacob Goldstein. Happy Valentine's Day and thanks for listening. 